Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. For our call to confession this morning, since we're beginning the Heidelberg Catechism anew this year, This morning I'd like to look at the scripture references for the fifth question that we'll be reading later in the service. The question is, can you keep all this perfectly? Referring back to God's law. The answer is no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Now there are many verses that are used in the catechism to support this answer. This morning I'd like to look at Titus uh, chapter three, verse three. It says, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. These verses draw a very uh, clear picture of the reality of our sinful nature, as stated in the answer that we're inclined to hate God and our neighbor. The catechism last week we read begins asking us what our only comfort is in life and death, and then asks us what we need to know to live in the joy of that comfort. The first thing we must know is how great our sins and miseries are. This verse from Titus summarizes this misery for us. Our misery is laid out first in our foolishness, characterized by hating God and rebelling against him, Instead of praising our Creator and obeying Him and giving Him honor, we seek to supplant Him with our own wisdoms and desires. Our nature moves from this foolishness to enslavement to our various lusts and pleasures, and our whole life becomes corrupt, full of malice, envy, hating God and our neighbor. Knowing this fact is truly miserable. It's miserable recognizing that every moment of every day we choose our own way our own gain and our own glory. The beginning of this verse, however, holds a very beautiful reality for believers. It says, we were in this state of misery. We were subjects to our own passions and selfishness. This is no longer our state of being. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We need to examine ourselves and see Where these attitudes still drive our actions though, where our selfish nature still holds sway over our obedience to our Lord. As kids, you can see where you may have been disobedient to your parents or teachers, seeing how the desire for the best toy or the biggest slice of pie comes from this desire to love ourselves before others. For us adults, we see areas where our pride or our laziness drives our behavior towards our children or our spouse And we can see where grumbling or envy mars our relationships, both in our work and even here in church. As believers, we have been set free from these inclinations through Christ, granted new hearts and renewed minds to love and serve our God. Yet we see each day the need to repent and turn from this sin that still clings to us. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So we're beginning this series in Nehemiah, and I'm going to dive right in. 
the last few weeks uh, in the holiday season of Advent and Christmas, we often do more topical series. Uh, we've been looking at uh, kind of almost uh, trying to address all the scriptures that have been in the service in the message for the last five to eight weeks or so. I'm uh, going to stop doing that now and just go back to focusing on the sermon text and expositing that. The text that we've already read uh, touch on it, and we'll, uh, they'll come, to, come into play, of course. But I'm not going to be trying to uh, address and uh, preach on everything. So just Nehemiah, starting in verses 1 to 3. You see in the, in the outline in the bulletin, there's three main points here. Destruction, confession, and intention. And we'll look at each of those in turn. So the destruction first. Uh, Nehemiah asks how Jerusalem is doing when one of uh, his brothers, that probably isn't biological brother as in family member, it probably refers to the fact that this is a a Jew, a a man from Judah as well as he is. Uh, But he comes and tells him the bad news. Uh, The city is still broken down. The city wall is broken down. Uh, This is bad news. Now, I'm going to throw a few dates at you. This is, there's some history we, we ought to know here. Don't worry too much about the dates, but just get the point that this is a prolonged problem, what's going on. Uh, this bad news from Hanani, this is a prolonged problem. 586 B.C. was the date when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. That's what we read in 2 Kings 25. This happened because of their sins. The wages of sin are, uh, as Romans 6.23 tells us, death, Right? But sometimes uh, there are worse things than death. Uh, That's uh, often the case. So I would uh, encourage you to remember that, you know, and it's almost become a cliche, it's so familiar to us, the wages of sin are death, right? That's true, but it's also true for believers that death has lost its sting. So we put those two together and sometimes we get a little confused and think, well, the wages of sin aren't so bad. No, no. Actually, they're really bad. So maybe, maybe think instead, the wages of sin are dreadful. Dreadful. And that's what we read in 2 Kings 25. I can't read that uh, without emotion. When King Zedekiah, the last king before exile, has his sons killed before him, and then his eyes gouged out, so that the last thing that he sees for the rest of his long life is the destruction of his family. The wages of sin are dreadful. Second Kings 17 also addresses that. It gives a, a very explicit explanation of why Israel and Judah are <clears throat> conquered and carried off into exile. 586 B.C. Now, uh, 538 B.C., about 50 years later, Cyrus, in Ezra 1.1, Cyrus decrees that Israel may return and rebuild. So that's 538 B.C. Now, 20 years after that, 515 B.C., roughly, the temple is finished. We can read that in in Ezra, I think it's chapter 3. I forgot to put that reference in there. The temple is finished. And interestingly, that's almost exactly 70 years since Solomon's temple was destroyed. Uh, So there you have 70 years from 586 B.C. to 515-ish B.C. Now, when Nehemiah begins, we can date this. This is 446 B.C., 70 years after the temple has been completed. Nehemiah hears that the city Jerusalem is still a ruin. This is a prolonged problem, is the point. Uh, No walls, no gates. The temple and the people are, in other words, completely vulnerable to marauders and enemies. 
of which they had plenty. Again, this is almost a hundred years after Cyrus's decree that Israel could return. And it's still a mess. It's a prolonged problem. Ezra the priest, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of a book together, really. Ezra has been doing some good work in Judah. He has returned before, but he needs help. Uh, one thing to apply here would be that, to think of, of it this way. To rebuild a community of God's people, you need more than priests and pastors. You need Nehemiahs as well. Now, Nehemiah holds high civil office. The king is essentially going to make him the governor of Judah, of Jerusalem. Uh, he's the cupbearer to the king, we learn, and that's not just being a waiter. <laughs> that's not uh, just being the chef. Uh, the cupbearer is a highly trusted position. He's essentially a food taster to see if the king's food has been poisoned. So cupbearers, if that's the role, cupbearers had to be two things. You had to be a very trusted servant, very trusted, and you also had to be somewhat dispensable. <laughs> Think of it that way, right? Well, if he does his job well, he might be dead next week, right? You've got to be highly trusted and also dispensable. And I think that's how we ought to see ourselves. We want to be that way. We want to be trustworthy people of use and service to our employers, to our neighbors. We want to be trustworthy like that. But we also need to remember that we are dispensable, right? That God's plan of redemption doesn't depend on me, right? God will bring help from somewhere. Esther is a great illustration of this, right? This is the same time frame, Esther, when Mordecai urges Esther to go into the king and plead for the Jews. Remember the famous line, for such a time as this, you may have been raised up. We often forget what he says next. He says, well, God will raise up help from somewhere else if you don't do it. Right? Esther is dispensable, is the point. Now, those, with a, those who are faithless and lazy may respond to that by saying, great, let somebody else do it. <laughs> right? That, that's one way to go. But those with a sense of duty and gratitude to God will say, God has put me here to do good. Nehemiah was put in a particular position to get help from the king to Jerusalem. And he does that. He has access to Persia's power and their budget. He's an organizer. He's a leader. He's the man God has arranged to move his purpose forward for his people. So that's what's going on here with all of this destruction that he hears of. And we can apply this to ourselves as well, right? We are awash in bad news these days. It's all around us. I heard just yesterday, I listened to the World Magazine's uh, daily news podcast. And they often do a, a segment on feedback from the editor. And the latest feedback was, you know, your recap of all the news in 2022 was so negative. It was just all bad news. And they basically responded saying, yeah, you're right. There were good things that happened that we should have reported more probably. But there's so much bad news. Just so much of it. Now the point isn't to avoid bad news, right? And just focus on positive things. Some people go that way. I'm just going to tune out the news, find that positive news source, and just do that. Well, no, there's plenty of bad news right here in the Bible, 
right in, in Nehemiah, but we've been reading a lot of it. I went heavy on it this morning. There's a lot of bad things that happen to God's people. And we should face that, that in our culture, our culture also is on the path towards this kind of destruction. Our, our threat may not be foreign invaders as much as we destroying ourselves. Uh, just think of what we're doing. We are bewitched today to kill our own babies as violently as the Babylonians did to the Jewish Judean babies. We're doing the same thing to ourselves. These are the wages of sin. It's dreadful. A culture that has forsaken God. That's the result that we see. But the point of the whole book of Nehemiah is that even amidst intense opposition, intense destruction like that, God is working his plan with his man. And it's going to succeed. That's what we see. It's going to take a while. It's a prolonged problem we're going through. Probably longer than we want it to take. But we trust him. And we do what we can where we are. So what does Nehemiah do? That's the first three verses. Verse 4. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned, fasting, praying. And then we get the prayer from verse 5 to 11. Weeping, mourning, fasting. Uh, Nehemiah responds in this way. That's why we sing a, a psalm of lament this morning. Those, those laments are important. Uh, fasting is important. I think it's a sign of our times that we fast today more for health reasons than for spiritual ones. Uh, we've forgotten uh, how to lament, uh, how to express uh, negative emotion uh, thoughts to God in constructive ways. So when we come into worship, it's the same thing. It's right that, that joy and gladness should be the main note when we gather as Christians. But when there's sorrow and trouble, we should not sweep it aside and just say, no, we're going to be happy here. That's a bad idea. Psalm 137, how can I sing songs of joy right now? They, they smashed our babies to pieces. They killed most of us. I'm a slave in a foreign land right now. Your situation probably isn't as severe as that, but crying out to God in grief, in your trouble, is warranted by God's word. So he's fasting, he's lamenting, he's praying. Notice that the first response generally is, is to pray. It makes me think of, if you've watched the news at all in the past week or two, you know the name, is it Damar Hamlin? Right? He, he collapses on the football field with, a, with heart uh, issues. And all, all of a sudden, the whole culture realizes, oh, we ought to pray for him. Right? The whole, all the teams, the, both teams go on the field and pray. Guy on ESPN prays publicly. Uh, all of a sudden, we're praying to God uh, for this man. It's a good thing. I'd also point out, though, that these are often flash-in-the-pan moments that pass. Uh, the same thing happened on September 11, 2001, when those planes flew into the towers. There was a brief surge of turning to God. Church attendance skyrocketed. But it did not last. We ought to turn to God and pray. Nehemiah's praying lasts. He prays, first of all, it says, for many days in verse 4. And also, if you read carefully, there's an interesting thing going on here. He um, hears this news in the month of Chislev, verse 1, 
that we don't know what Chislev is, so we have to look that up. It's November or December in, in the Hebrew lunar calendar. And then, chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, something actually happens, right? Nisan is March, April. So I, I would contend that Nehemiah has been praying in this manner for four months, seeking God's face. What do I do? What do we do? We confess our sins. This is the Luke 18 point. Persistence in prayer. Always keep praying without losing heart. As you're seeking justice, as you're seeking restoration, and you see it's not happening yet, and the next year you see it's not happening yet, you keep praying. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. God may take a while, but justice will come. So don't let your prayer life be a flash in the pan. Make it persistent, consistent. And then Nehemiah's confessing, verses 5 through 10. A long prayer here that's very instructive. Uh, verses 5 and 10, he begins and ends with God's mercy and faithfulness. Uh, God, you are a God of mercy. You forgive. You keep covenant, he says. Then verse 6 and 7, he admits sin. My father's house and I have sinned. Verses 8 and 9, he actually quotes scripture. Nehemiah quotes from Leviticus. I think it's 26. I forgot to write that down too. He, the, the, all, all of verse 8 and 9, he's quoting a long section of Leviticus. And he's claiming the promise there that, that if in exile God's people repent and return to God, then God will bring them back to the land. So Nehemiah is essentially saying, God, you promised. You said that if this ever happened to us, that you'd take us back if we confessed. Well, I'm confessing. <laughs> he's claiming God's promise. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Now, I would contend, uh, and this is just a, a point of application, uh, that this is a very different response than we would have today, right? If we heard news or if we went through what uh, Israel went through, uh, and, and it's awfully unimaginable to think of, right? I mean, just to give it some specificity, I didn't put this in my notes, but think of, think of communist China invading America, conquering it, killing all the children and carrying us off as slaves to China. That's the kind of situation. Imagine that. How would we respond? I think our response would be very different today. We would focus, or think ahead in Nehemiah to the men like Sanballat, who opposed the rebuilding efforts of the temple. What would we think about Sanballat? How would we respond to that? I think we'd focus on those opposing Israel, opposing God's people. Uh, how could they do this to us? Why do they hate us so much? And you see the assumption there is we don't deserve to be persecuted like that. We, we, take, we take on a martyr complex very quickly. Nehemiah responds very differently. His first response is to lament, yes, and then to say, we have sinned. We deserved this good and hard because the wages of sin are dreadful. But show mercy now. See, Nehemiah is focused on God's mercy uh, even more so than on our sins and our faults. Nehemiah is going to get to those who oppose him and he's going to deal effectively with them. We'll see that in future chapters. But only because he has set his own house in order first. 
uh, I think that too many teachers in our circles today give us something of a false choice. They'll say something like, you know, the bad guys, they just talk about the gospel, and it's just words, and it's Gnosticism that never lands in physical life. The good guys, they focus on our physical lives and give us practical instruction. Sometimes we get thinking that way, and I think it's extremely dangerous. It's a recipe for the pragmatism and the legalism of past generations. Faced with an earthly problem, like Nehemiah's faced with, the need to rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah begins by confessing Israel's sin, appealing to God's mercy, to the gospel. If you don't base your building on the gospel, then none of your zeal and energy and resolutions will amount to a hill of beans. So this is Nehemiah's response. Lament, confession, prayer. Now, last, let's look at his intention. And this one will be shorter because this will take up the whole rest of the book, really. But it begins here in this first section. Intention. Not only is Nehemiah praying, but he also has a plan. He has a specific plan. He's going to ask the king for something. Verse 11, we get that uh, picture. It's just, just the very last sentence. Uh, he says, help me as I go and give me favor with this man. And he's talking about the king. Give me favor with this man. He, Nehemiah prays. He wants God to get the king to say yes. And then verse 1 through 5, you see the request. So it, so it happens. Uh, he comes to the king serving him, and he looks sad. Uh, now, think of that. If your food taster comes with the food to you, and he looks kind of sad or upset, that's the last thing you want, right? Why are you sad? It's a very natural question. You want your food taster looking confident and relaxed. Things are fine. If he's nervous, if he's fidgety, if he's depressed, your life might be in danger. Why are you sad? Notice what, Nehemiah, what it says next. So I became dreadfully afraid. That one puzzled me for a while. That, that's the moment to strike. Why would he be afraid? I think the answer is he's been praying for four months about what to do. Seeking an opening. You know, you don't just go to the king and say, Hey, king, I got this problem. Can you help me out? That's not, I mean, we might do that today in our more democratic, egalitarian society. With the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, you wait for him to ask you. And so Nehemiah is waiting. And now, after four months, he has his opening. It's the same, I think, by the way, with uh, the church and the world today. Uh, and we need to remember this. The world does not come to the church and say, hey, how can we accommodate you? How can we put your beliefs into practice in public policy? Tell us how we could do that. The world isn't going to do that. Right? But every now and then, there's an opening. In a conversation with a friend, in a Supreme Court decision, whatever it is. And Nehemiah sees it. And that makes Nehemiah afraid. I think that's really realistic. Because those moments don't come all that often. And we, we realize all, all of a sudden, hey, this is a moment God's giving me. Now I've got to say and do the right thing. So this is the moment to speak. Nehemiah knows it, and it makes him afraid. Now he relates his grief in verse 3. 
I would assume the king probably knows little about it. The king doesn't know uh, the exact state of uh, all his many uh, conquered provinces. And the king then asks what he wants. What do you request? Now at this point, this is interesting. So Nehemiah knows he has God's, uh, the king's favor at this point. What does he say? Well, he knows two things. First of all, he knows that he needs God's help. So he prays. Right? Standing before the greatest king on earth in that day, Nehemiah thinks of the king of kings. And that's important. Could you do that? Standing in the Oval Office with the president asking you, what is it you want? Can you be thinking in that moment of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord? Maybe Nehemiah is thinking of Solomon's proverb from 500 years before him. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Nehemiah knows he needs God's help. This must have been a short prayer, <laughs> right? When, when you're standing before the king, uh, when, it, when the king asks you what you want, you don't dawdle with a long pause or a rambling reply. It's, it's probably just, help me, Lord. And then he proceeds. The second thing Nehemiah knows, he need, knows he needs God's help. He also knows he needs to be specific. And he gets very specific in the rest of these verses. That Nehemiah sees what needs to change, and he asks for that, and he works towards that. And we'll uh, get more specific in future weeks. Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem needs leadership and resources. Uh, and Nehemiah knows, too, that he could be that guy if the king lets him. This is something uh, to apply uh, to all of us in our self-government, uh, to husbands as well. Your family needs uh, leadership, and it needs resources. You can be that guy. So in your family, God has a plan, and God has a man, a role for each one to play. In this church, God has a plan, and God has a few men, deacons, elders, pastors. In redemptive history, God has a plan, and God has a man. Capital M, Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude today by pointing out uh, the, what they call the Christocentric focus. Right? This is uh, something, just to give you a little window into uh, how I was trained to preach, uh, you, you outline the text, you put the outline together, and then you always ask, where is Jesus here? Is he here? How? Uh, and you study that for a while. And you need to get to that in the message in some way at some point. I think Nehemiah is a type of Christ. Nehemiah knows the bad news, the destruction that has come to God's people. Didn't Jesus know that? He saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He saw the ruin that Satan brought to God's creation. He made the world that is now wrecked in the first place. Nehemiah sees that destruction. Nehemiah's Jesus sees that destruction. Second, Nehemiah is in a position to do something about it. He's at the king's side. Doesn't that describe Jesus? at the right hand of God the Father. 
and he can do something about it. So he intercedes for God's people. He takes their burden of sin on himself, not just confessing it, but sacrificing for it. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. And last, Nehemiah acts to rebuild the city, to rebuild God's people. That's what Jesus does. The sacrifice of Christ at the cross is the cornerstone of the temple of God's people. Nehemiah points us to the Lord Jesus. So like I said, Nehemiah is going to get very specific about what needs to happen. And I hope to as well as we walk through Nehemiah together. Nehemiah prays, he plans, and he pleads to rebuild Jerusalem. Let us pursue that rebuilding effort as well today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the ways in which it points us to our Lord Jesus, the ways in which it convicts us of our sin, shows us the dreadful consequences of them, but also shows your mercy and forgiveness, the hope there is on the other side of any destruction that comes. You are a faithful, giving God, and we praise you for that. We ask, Lord, that as we consider your word, that you would help us to respond appropriately, faithfully, and specifically. We thank you uh, for giving us your son, and we pray in his name, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Peter chapter 1 this morning. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice that here at this table, we see the three things we talked about in the message. We see the bad news of our sin and Jesus suffering the dreadful wages of it for us. A sacrifice was needed. When we suffer unfairly, we are being like Jesus. Second, here at the table, we see the solution and we plead that solution the cross of Jesus Christ. We plead that solution to God. And here at the table third, we see God's intention, his plan to rebuild his people by uniting us with Jesus Christ. These are gifts of God for the people of God. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the Lord's authority, the authority of Christ and his church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in God's sovereign mercy that you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. 
So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus, the body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.